You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. So these nine verses um, are really uh, filled with verse after verse of very challenging exhortation uh, for the Christian. And uh, so we're going to take our time and we're going to probably do these nine verses over the next at least two weeks, probably uh, probably three weeks. Um, and these verses are really not for the faint of heart Christian. They're not for the Christian who's just looking to slide by in their Christian life. Uh, rather, this is for individuals who would say, I want to be like Christ, whatever it takes. I want to be like Christ, whatever it takes. My goal is to be as close to Jesus as possible. I don't want to settle for some surface level Christianity. Uh, the things we'll talk about here in the first nine verses are, are not really obvious, blatant sins. Okay, They're, We're not talking about uh, gross sin. We're not talking about uh, sexual sin or, or lying or stealing or murder or, or hatred or, or blaspheming God or things we might consider gross sin. In fact, I think um, if your greatest struggles are the struggles we'll discuss here in chapter 4, uh, most Christians would probably uh, look at you and call you radical. Like you're radical. If you're not dealing with all this stuff, and these are the things you're really dealing with, you're a radical Christian. Because of the Christian society we've created, um, you know, many may not even characterize these things as sin. But I want to look at these exhortations again with fresh eyes over the next couple of weeks and see if we can allow God. Um, to take us deeper in our relationship with Him. Take us deeper in our relationship with Him. So I'm titling this mini-series, I don't usually do a lot of titles, but I'm titling this little next couple, two to three weeks of verses 1 to 9, I'm titling it this, Subtle Struggles of the Spiritually Mature. If you're taking notes this morning, that's kind of your heading. Subtle Struggles of the Spiritually Mature. Because as I said, these aren't blatant, rebellious acts towards God. Um, they're a lot more subtle than that. But they are sin nonetheless. And we need to treat them as sin. And we need to take them very seriously in our lives if we're going to grow in our relationship with Christ. And you know, that's the starting point this morning. A relationship uh, with Jesus. I want you to notice how many times in the first nine ver- verses Paul uses the phrase, a phrase similar to in the Lord. So he says it in verse 1, stand fast in the Lord. Verse 2, he says, be of the same mind in the Lord. Uh, he goes on, he says, they've labored with me in the gospel. Their names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord. Um, down in uh, verse 7, he says, through Christ Jesus. In the Lord is key here. Through Christ is key here. Uh, the foundation, really, of this chapter is that you have a relationship with Jesus. That's the starting point, uh, really, for these principles. These aren't just, um, this isn't good life advice I'm giving you today. It's not, it's not uh, just principles to live and, and, and be happy by. If you, if you follow these principles, you'll be happy. I can't give you principles like that. You see, because apart from a relationship with Jesus... You know, you can follow these principles all you want. You can follow every principle in the Bible, but apart from a relationship with Jesus, 
you'll never know that peace of God that surpasses all understanding that, that, that chapter 4 talks about here. Um, so I, I would implore you, please, if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, with God, don't leave here this morning until you have one. Don't leave here until you've surrendered your life to your Creator. Please. Over the past couple of weeks, uh, as we finish up chapter 3, we've been talking about keys to reaching the prize of the Christian life, right? And we talked about that prize, and that prize is really Christ-likeness. It's being more like Christ. It's being as close to Christ as we can be. And ultimately, um, in eternity, Jesus will give us a new body, and we will be just like Christ. We will be like Christ. We will reach that perfect state that we will never reach on this earth. And Paul opens up chapter 4 with a really uh, nice transition statement. He, he, says, he first says, therefore. So that means we've got to look back, right? We've got to look into chapter 3. So he says, because you want to reach this prize of, this prize of Christ-likeness, because false teachers, he just got done talking about false teachers, because false teachers who are enemies of the cross are out there and they're invading your churches, because our citizenship is not here, but it's in heaven, because of all these things, he says in verse 1, he says, Stand fast in the Lord. Stay strong in your faith in Jesus. Cling to His word. Cling to His gospel. Don't budge on the message of the gospel. We cannot budge on Christ. There's nothing more important. There's no more message more important than that Christ died for sinners. Amen? There's no message more important than that. We must stand firm on that anchor. And you can see Paul is writing this like a father would write, really. Um, he says, My beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, he calls them. He again calls them, them beloved after that. Um, we've already discussed in this, this book that Paul had a very special relationship with this church, right? Um, he loved this church so dearly, and he's writing this. He just said in chapter 3 that he's weeping while he's writing this. And he's saying, please, church, please, just whatever you do, stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. And he goes on in verses 2 through 9 to instruct them further on struggles to avoid if they're going to stand fast in the Lord. If you want to stand fast in the Lord, you better be mindful of these things in the next few verses. And here's where we'll jump into kind of the meat of the passage and discuss the subtle struggles of the spiritually mature. And I call them subtle um, because most people who call themselves Christians aren't even concerned about these things, sadly. Um, to many so-called Christians... Uh, these things are just kind of bonus good advice, just kind of wise living advice, um, not commands from the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, so let me start by just reading. I want to read the, the, five, um, the five things that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. So these are the subtle struggles of the spiritually mature that I see here in this, this passage. So number one is prioritizing unity over self, prioritizing unity over over self, and we'll talk about that one in a few minutes. Number two is rejoicing in all circumstances. We'll talk about that one today. Uh, number three, patiently extending grace to all. Patiently extending grace to all. We think, 
That's not that, that's just like good advice, right? I don't have to do that as a Christian. I don't have to show grace to people. That's just like if they're good to me. Well, we'll talk about that. Uh, number four, this one's going to hurt, I think, when we get there. Surrendering worry to the Father. Surrendering worry, and you could add anxiety in there. Surrendering worry and anxiety to the Father. How many people struggle with anxiety or worry, would you say? Okay, I think that was everyone. I think that was everyone that, that, that struggle with worry. We're going to talk about that next week. Um, surrendering that worry to the Father. How do we even do that? How do we even do that? So we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that. And, and number five is protecting our thought life. Okay, many Christians aren't thinking about their thought life. But yet we see this, this exhortation here from Paul saying, you better be concerned about your thought life. It's not just about what you do publicly. It's about what goes on in your brain too, what goes on in your mind. So we'll, that's where we're going over uh, the next two to three weeks. And remember that the church of Philippi, for the most part, was a very mature church. This is a good church, okay? This isn't like the church in Corinth, which when we dive into our next study, uh, you'll see they really struggle with some serious, serious sin. This church isn't really like that, as far as we know. Paul doesn't really point out any serious sins that they're, they're um, struggling with. He calls them here his joy. He calls them his crown. He's very proud to have planted this church. Very excited to see their progress. He doesn't have any, really, behavior to correct. Because apparently the church is doing well. And they've set themselves apart. They've set themselves apart as pure as a church. But nonetheless, there are a few things to point out if the Philippian church is going to take another step in their maturity and prepare themselves for what's coming as far as persecution goes. And if they're going to have the kind of influence they need to have in their culture. And these things are really things that every Christian, no matter how mature, will fight battles against. So everyone can relate to these five things. Um, no matter how mature we are in our faith, you're going to have a battle with one of these five things. You've probably had a battle with worry maybe already today, right? Yeah? Um, so we're going to battle these things. No matter, even the more close and close, closer and closer we get to Jesus, we're still going to have these temptations, these five things. That's why I call them subtle struggles of the, Christian, of the mature Christian. Because this isn't just this isn't just low hanging fruit as far as keeping us holy. This is this is things that if we really want to reach the next level of maturity, we need to we need to be be mindful of. So we'll get started here, and the first one is going to be prioritizing unity over self. Prioritizing unity over self. And we see that in verses uh, two and three. So let's read those verses again. It says, "I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord." And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, Paul already in this epistle has talked a decent amount about unity, right? And we've talked a decent amount about unity already. Um, this has led many scholars to believe that this was maybe Paul's main point, at least one of his main points in writing this letter. There were some struggles, probably, with unity within this body. Even though they were a spiritually mature body, they were a holy body, they more than likely struggled with unity. We know they did, because he gives some specifics here. 
Paul's already said in verse, in verse 27 of chapter 1, he said, they needed to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the gospel. Chapter 2 has pretty much a theme of unity, uh, achieving unity through humility. Um, Paul exhorts them to have the mind of Christ. Remember, he gave the example of Christ and his humility um, and his, um, his lowering of himself, even to the point of death on the cross. In chapter 3, Paul mentioned walking by the same rule and being of the same mind. So we've talked about this already a lot. And here in chapter 4, he gets a lot more specific about what's going on. He says, I, I implore, I, I beg, I plea, I urge you, Odia and Syntyche, whoever these people are, I, I implore them, please, be of the same mind. So evidently there were uh, two ladies in the church that are having some sort of conflict. And it's bad enough that Paul, from prison in Rome, feels like he needs to correct this. And he needs to name names here. Um, now, I want you to imagine for a moment being these two women sitting in the church building, listening to their elder read the letter that Paul has written. Okay, So that's how that sort of worked back then. Obviously, they didn't have a full copy of the New Testament like, like we did. But Paul wrote the letter from from Rome, he sent it with Epaphroditus to take back to the Philippian church, and then their elders would have read it to the to the church, and they would have passed it along to other churches. So imagine for a moment being uh, being one of these two ladies, and probably the whole time in the first three chapters, they're hearing things like "be of the same mind" and "and be of the same spirit," uh, "submit to one another in love," and they're they're probably each probably looking around the room. Shaking their heads like, yeah, you need to hear this. Right, you ever done that in a message? Like, oh man, I really hope John Boy's listening. Because he needs to hear this message. He really needs to hear this one. Well, I imagine this was the same way with these two ladies. They're looking across the room like glaring at each other. Like, did you hear that, Euodia? Did you hear what he said there? Did you hear what Paul just said to us? Like, you need to listen. You need to listen to what's going on. This is for you, not for me. This is for you. And then the elder would have got to this point. And now they hear their names called. Wow, Paul from Rome. He's like, I didn't even know he knew my name. And he's writing my name. Probably they had some sort of relationship. Um, but he, their names are called. Now I'm sure they didn't even think we would be reading their names 2,000 years later, right? They probably didn't. I mean, they've really gone gone down in history, right, as people with unity problems. That's a tough one. You don't want to make the Bible for those reasons, right? You really don't want your name to be there uh, for the wrong reasons. So um, how embarrassing that must have been for the ladies. They're kind of sticking their foot in their mouth. Oh, he was talking about me. This is for me. Um, I didn't know Paul knew about our little dispute. You know, um, Paul took disunity, and the Holy Spirit takes disunity very, very seriously, and, and so should we. And I think that's sometimes the last thing on our mind when we make a decision that affects other people, or when we uh, leave others out, or when we get so upset about a text message that, that one of our church members has sent us, and, and we didn't like the way it was worded, you know. It's the last thing sometimes on our mind 
unity. The first thing on our mind usually is us, how that made us feel, what that did uh, to us. Most Christians aren't worried about maintaining unity or pursuing unity in the church. Many Christians don't know anything about unity. Many, many Christians in a mega church, for instance, probably don't even have like a little small group of people within that church that they're fellowshipping with. They probably don't get to practice unity, honestly. And there's some really good mega churches out there, some really horrible ones too. But what I mean, you know, we're kind of in that huge church society where you don't really talk to other people. I don't really have to get along with them because I don't talk to them, right? You know, people don't really think about unity and how their choices affect the entire body. In fact, many Christians, even within the church, live a very me-centered church life. And we can get along until you cross me or until our ideas don't mesh together. Then we can't get along, right? Then we have a problem. And you know, that kind of attitude, it's not only unwise. We're not talking about just wisdom here. We're talking about sin. It's not just being unwise that we're talking about. We're talking about a sinful attitude of not promoting unity in the body. God's called His church together as a body. And if one part of the body is not in sync, it affects the whole body. Look with me really quick in at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And this, this whole chapter is really about, uh, it's about spiritual gifts and unity, using those spiritual gifts. But Paul likens the church to a body, a, a physical human body. Um, and in verse 21, he says, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We need each other in the body. And down in verse 26, he says, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. We're a body. If one member of us is suffering we all suffer if there's a dispute between two members of our church don't think that doesn't affect the whole body that affects the whole church if you think your unforgiveness or your dispute or your grudge against someone doesn't affect the entire church you're wrong your sin affects the whole disputes between church members divide and there's nothing there's nothing that satan loves more than a divided church isolated people uh, people taking sides in a church on a particular issue who has seen an issue with disunity destroy a church probably okay way too many of us way too many of us That's why we, as members of this church, we sign a covenant. Which, by the way, if you want to renew your covenant, you need to do that in the next couple of weeks. Um, but we sign a covenant, and that covenant says, I'll hold my fellow members accountable.
accountable. I will pray for my fellow members. I will push them towards Christ. I will settle disputes in a biblical way. Our covenant says all that. We don't have time for disunity. The mission at hand is too important. Well, Paul sure isn't worried here about hurting feelings, is he? He's not concerned at all about hurting feelings. He just calls it out. He calls these two ladies out on what, what they're disputing about. Now, what are they disputing about? We, we don't really know. We don't really have any more information than what's given here. We know that it's probably not a uh, theological debate. Otherwise, Paul probably would have just corrected it there. No, you're wrong. You're right. This is, this is really what the Holy Spirit's saying here. It's probably not a theological debate. I think, I think he would have, um, would have settled it. So more than likely, this is something personal, right? It's a matter of feelings or it's a matter of preference. Now, sometimes disputes of doctrine are worth fighting for, right? Sometimes it's worth getting into a dispute about doctrine. Primary Christian doctrine. We can't get along if we don't agree on certain things, right? We've got to agree on the gospel. But most of our disputes are not that. Most of our disputes are personal things. They're, they're preferential things. It's a, matter of, it's a matter of I prefer it this way, they prefer it this way. It's dumb. Most of our disputes within a church, out of you guys that that's, have seen uh, churches ruined by disunity um, how many of those was that a uh, theological issue a couple how many of those was a personal issue yeah how crazy that we would let personal differences personal preferences get in the way of our ultimate mission for Christ to see people saved. It's crazy. And when that dispute arises, there's no time to speak in generalities. We don't just speak generally about the problem. We must, like Paul, we must call it out. We must call it out in ourselves. You've got to be, able, you've got to be mature enough as a Christian to call out ridiculousness in yourself when you're being ridiculous about some interaction you had with someone when you're you're holding on to a preference ridiculously too much we've got to be at the point guys where the gospel is so important to us that I can call out my own ridiculousness and we've also got to call it out in others we've got to help our brothers and sisters along when when, when they don't see it. We've got to help each other keep the big picture in mind. That's what the church is for. I want us to notice here how easy it is for anyone, no matter how mature we think we are, to fall into a, a trap of, of disunity. So listen to how Paul describes these women. He's, he calls them, um, he says, they've labored, they've labored with me in the gospel. He says, they're my fellow workers. He says, their names are in the book of life. These aren't pretenders. 
These aren't Christians that just call themselves Christians. They're not really Christians. These are legitimate Christians working towards Christ-likeness. These are legitimate Christians working towards getting the gospel to others. They've labored with Paul in getting the gospel to others. The gospel is important to them. But they let their pride get in the way. Doesn't matter how how matured you are this morning, you should consider yourself a threat to the unity of this church. That includes myself, Stephen, that includes everyone in this room. We should consider ourselves as a potential threat to the unity of this church. Let's not think we're too good for that. I'm too mature. I would never let a, a silly dispute get in the way, really. Don't be prideful about it. Just understand, I need, I need the Holy Spirit in my life to guard me from disunity. To guard myself from promoting disunity in this church. I need the Holy Spirit to guide me on that and to guard me in that. These two ladies that let their pride get in the way. Remember when we talked about unity in chapter 2, it really came down to pride, didn't it? And if we're to have true unity, we must daily decide to lower ourselves. Sometimes take the hit. Lower our wants. Lower our desires. Lower our preferences for the greater goal of seeing people come to Christ. Of seeing people grow in their faith in Christ. Paul instructs the ladies to be of the same mind. Literally, think the same thing. That's what he tells them. You two, just think the same thing. Well, that's easy, huh? What are you saying, Paul? Like, <laughs> like, just you two, you know, you're having a dispute. Well, just think the same thing. Okay. All right, Paul, whatever. Right? I mean, how? that's not easy. How am I just going to think the same thing? That's why we're in this mess, Paul. We don't think the same thing. She thinks a stupid idea. I think a great one. We don't think the same thing, Paul. And you're telling us to think the same thing. Brilliant. Sounds like bad advice, doesn't it? How is that possible, Paul? Well, the next three words are very key to this. And I want you to underline them. In the Lord. That's how. You think the same thing. You be of the same mind in the Lord. Nobody's telling you to agree on everything. Nobody's telling you that you uh, just have to conform your thinking with the person you're disputing with and suddenly things will be magical and great. But you are to be of the same mind in the Lord. They can't do this unity thing on their own power. There's a supernatural unity that comes only from each member submitting to the Lord. These two ladies need to both individually get right with the Lord. That's how they're going to agree. They need to put on the mind of Christ in this dispute. That's how they're going to agree. That's how they're going to resolve the dispute. See, two people who are in good relationship with the Lord and submitting to His will in every dispute will have no trouble having harmony with each other. It's impossible. 
for you both to be in the Lord, in the will of the Lord, and still have this heat that lingers. It's impossible, guys. That's, you're both of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not arguing with himself. In every dispute, we need to ask ourselves, am I submitting to the lordship of Jesus? And do I have the gospel at the center of this dispute? Is the gospel really the center of this dispute? If it's not, then there's your problem. Let's rearrange things. Let's make the gospel the center of my life again. And then we can agree on the little things. As simple as that. We let the Holy Spirit work in our lives. Paul goes on to instruct others to intervene if if necessary. He says, I urge you, true companion, to help them, along with Clement and and the rest of the fellow workers. Now that word for true companion is syzygous. So it might be a name. It seems strange. Who is he talking to here? He says, I urge you, true companion. Well, I thought he was writing this to the whole church. A lot of scholars think that's actually a name, syzygous. That's somebody's name. And so he's saying, Sizzigas, you and Clement and the rest of the fellow workers, you come together and you help them in this dispute. You push them along. He's imploring the church to be involved because it affects the church. This is bigger than just two ladies that don't agree. It affects the testimony of the church. It affects the entire church. It affects every member. And we must, as a church, hold each other to unity. There's a difference between meddling and gossiping and then seeking to reconcile two people. Okay, so let's, let's get this whole, hey, I'm afraid to gossip out of our minds. Don't gossip. You know what gossip is. And then you know when you are trying to reconcile two people. We know the difference, right? We know the difference in our lives between, I just want to be involved so I know all the facts and I can tell it to everyone. I want to express my opinion. I want to take sides. And I'd love these two brothers or these two sisters or whatever it may be. And I just want to see them reconciled. Because we have a mission. And I don't want to miss out on that mission. I want Jesus to use this church for all he can. We have to hold each other to unity. If you know two people in the church are disputing and you do nothing, you are just as guilty. You're just as guilty. If my foot is bleeding, will I not use both of my hands to try to repair repair the bleeding? Right? Otherwise, I'm going to bleed out and my whole body will be affected. Understand, we are a body. If our foot is bleeding, I need some hands to get in their business and help for the sake of reconciliation. Not for the sake of being in each other's business to gossip about it. That's where you got to have a personal conversation with yourself. Am I about gossip or am I about reconciliation? And you got to be honest with yourself because it might actually be about gossip and you don't realize. Love one another. It all comes down to that, right? Love each other enough to say the hard things sometimes. To see reconciliation 
On top of that, if, if you're in a dispute and you have this attitude, it's none of the church's business, well, you're wrong. You're wrong. It is the church's business because your sin affects the church. And ultimately, your sin affects the reputation of Jesus Christ. That's not something you want to mess with. Your sin affects the reputation of this church and the reputation of Jesus, most importantly. We must be about protecting the testimony of the gospel, whatever it takes. See, the gospel of Christ is too important to be dragged through the mud of your sin, of your dispute. The gospel is too important. Every day people leave the church and forget about Jesus because of how they see Christians treat each other inside the church or how they see Christians treat non-Christians inside the church. Unity is a serious, serious issue. That's why I, I, I thought about skimming over this because we've talked about it several times during the study, but I can't. It's too serious. If Paul wrote it 18 times to the Philippians, then maybe we need to preach on 18 times. We need to get this. We need to make sure it's of utmost importance to each individual here. And if it's not, I sincerely ask you to find another church. Because we must be about our Father's business in this church. And to do that, we must be unified. So promote unity. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you see yourself as a threat to unity in this church? I hope you do. I hope you do, and you're, at, and you're submitting to the Holy Spirit in that. And is, is unity a priority for you? Is it enough of a priority to stop gossip as soon as you catch wind of it? Is it enough of a priority to sometimes have a difficult conversation in order to help reconcile two people? Is it enough to lower myself for the sake of the gospel? Not prioritizing unity in the church is, is a subtle struggle. One that we don't talk about a lot, we don't preach on a lot. Probably not one that many Christians are concerned with. I'm asking us as a body and you as an individual to make it a priority. Make it a priority for yourself. The next subtle struggle that we see here of the spiritually mature Christian is being able to rejoice in all circumstances. Boy, that's easy, huh? Rejoice in all circumstances. Paul continues his exhortation here uh, in verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He says it twice. In case you didn't hear me the first time, rejoice. Always rejoice. Of course, if you've been with us throughout this study, uh, you know this is another theme. These first two are really, they've been themes throughout this, this study. So some of this is, is review, but uh, maintaining joy and rejoicing through circumstances is a major theme of this little uh, letter. But it's quite an interesting command. That, that's a command. Do y'all see a question there? It's a command, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Just do it. He's not asking any questions here. He's not suggesting it. 
uh, he's commanding us to rejoice. And that's an interesting command when you consider the circumstances. Paul's writing this from prison, first of all. Paul's writing to Christians of the first century in the Roman Empire, which means these Christians would have been suffering persecution. And their persecution was about to get significantly worse in the next few years. See, there was this huge fire in Rome in 64 AD. This was written before that. There's this huge fire in Rome in 64 AD. And Emperor Nero, uh, many scholars think he's actually the one that caused the fire, that planned the fire for political reasons. Um, But he blamed the Christians. He threw the Christians under the bus. And he wasn't so bad on Christians before. But after the fire, after he blamed the Christians for the fire, he went on a tear against Christians. Killing them, murdering them ruthlessly. Hanging them from the ceiling and lighting them on fire to to light his parties. We've talked about that. Emperor Nero was, was one of the most ruthless human beings on earth towards Christianity. All for some political agenda. So the atmosphere with the Philippian church was about to get terrible. And every church, for that matter. Every church within the Roman Empire. On top of that, these believers, obviously they're dealing with false teachers. It's difficult for them to even know what to believe sometimes. You've got teachers coming in after Paul saying, oh, you can't believe Paul, he's in prison anyway. Why would he be in prison? You can't believe him, believe this. They don't even know what to believe sometimes, I'm sure. Sure, it was hard to kind of um, objectively weigh what is true and what is not true. They would have to cling to the apostles' teachings for sure. On top of that, they're concerned about Paul because he's in prison. On top of that, they're concerned about their brother Epaphroditus, who we've talked about in this study, who's gone to minister to Paul, and he's almost lost his life. Apparently uh, had some, some sickness or some struggle that, is, that has, has made him almost lose his life. So they're concerned about him. There's a lot of hardship going on with this church. And yet Paul, page after page, is consistently telling them to rejoice. He's not suggesting it. He's not giving them wise advice. He's commanding them. To rejoice. How can you command something like that? I just buck up and be joyful. It's about as good as think the same thing. Right? Just be joyful, would you? I know you just got diagnosed with cancer, but would you just show joy? That's a pointless endeavor on our own, right? I mean, can't just show joy. I can't just be joyful. I don't know what's going on here. He's commanding them to rejoice. You know, it's easy to rejoice um, and glorify Christ when my life is altogether wonderful, right? It's easy. Um. But when life is falling apart, when I did just get that cancer diagnosis, when I have lost a child, when my career dreams are crushed, when I didn't get into the school that I wanted to get into, when my spouse abandons me, 
how can you tell me to rejoice when you know nothing of the circumstance in my life? Right? And the answer comes again. Once again, I want you to underline again those three words, in the Lord. He rejoiced in the Lord. Now, if you don't know Christ this morning, I don't know what to tell you when bad things happen to you. Bad things will happen to you. That's a guarantee. In this life, you will have tribulation. I don't know what you're going to do. Because you live for those things. Everything is about the things that you can touch and feel. So when you lose those things, I don't know what to tell you. And you won't be able to rejoice, certainly. But through Christ, those that are in Christ, those three little words mean everything. See, Paul's not saying, be happy that many of you are about to die from persecution. He's not saying, praise the Lord because I'm in prison. And I'm about to be beheaded. He's not saying rejoice in your circumstances. No one expects you to be happy about cancer. Or about losing a child. Or about some other tragedy in your life. No one expects you to be happy about that circumstance. But even in those moments when you don't know if you can even face the next day, Christians can rejoice in the Lord. And it really goes back to that whole, this world is not my home. That we talked about a lot last week. This world is not your home. We can rejoice because no matter what happens in this life, no matter what is taken away from you, no one can separate us from our future in heaven with our Savior. Amen? No one can take that away from you as a Christian. That is your hope. I don't know about everything else. I don't know if your wife's going to abandon you. I don't know if you're going to have cancer. I don't know if you're going to die at an early age. I don't know if you're going to lose your, your family. I don't know. But I know that you can have joy in the Lord and in His promises and what your future is. You can't necessarily just be happy about your present. You can't just buck up and and just be happy about everything falling down in your life. But boy, you can look forward to that future even more. And you can praise the Lord. You can say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing in this circumstance, but I know that my future is secure in you. My future is absolutely secure in you. I wanted to read Romans chapter 8. We don't really have time to do that. But you guys, you guys know that passage. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Nothing will. Go back and read that whole chapter. It will encourage you uh, this afternoon. When you're in Christ, death has lost its sting. 
Suffering can only hurt you temporarily. A new day is coming when you'll be in the very presence of the Lord. So you can rejoice in that. Can you rejoice in that? And no matter what happens in your life, can you rejoice in that? Because that is sure. And God has given you a down payment, the Holy Spirit in your life. And He's assured you that this is going to happen. We don't have to walk around aimlessly like, I don't know if God's going to let me into heaven or not. No, you know it if you're in Jesus. Because He has paid the penalty for your sin. I haven't worked my way up to heaven. I can't. Rather, I've died to myself and I've accepted Jesus' payment. His sacrifice, His atonement. It's all about Him, and He's already done it. So I can have joy even in the midst of terrible, terrible, terrible circumstances. Not about the circumstances, but about Jesus. We can rejoice that while we were sinning against Him, Christ died for us to pay the penalty of our sins. We can rejoice that not only has He done that, but He's adopted us as His sons and His daughters, which means you're going to inherit everything He has. You can rejoice because you have instant, anytime access to God, and He hears your prayers, and He knows your prayers before you pray them. You can rejoice because He is sovereign. Nothing in your life catches Him by surprise. And He's on your side. He's fighting for you. You can rejoice because in that fight for you, He's working everything for your good. Everything in your life, He is working for your good. Even when you can't see how is this possibly working for my good, He's working it for your good. You can rejoice because He gifts you. He gives you gifts that you can use in the ministry. You can use for His work. He equips you. For every good work. Rejoice that while... What I deserve is eternity in hell. I get eternity in His presence in a place called paradise. And nothing will ever take that away from the Christian. Nothing can take it away. I don't care what falls apart here. Nothing will take that away. So you can rejoice in the Lord always. Through anything, I can rejoice in the Lord. Even John the Baptist struggled with rejoicing in the Lord. You know that? In Matthew 11, John the Baptist is in prison, and he sends to Jesus. He says, can y'all ask Jesus if he's the one or if we should be looking for someone else? Because I'm in prison. 
he would later be killed for his faith. He says, ask Jesus if he's really the one. Because my circumstances say something different right now. Even John the Baptist struggled. And Jesus reassured him. He sent back, he said, you tell John to look around. The blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life. In other words, I'm creating a whole new kingdom that you don't know anything about, John. Trust me. I am ushering in a chance for paradise with God. So yeah, I'm the one. He reassures him. See, Jesus has that eternal perspective. And he's trying to get John to say, have that eternal perspective, John. I know your circumstances aren't where you want them, but know that I am working something much greater, much, much greater. I'm ushering in this whole kingdom that you know nothing about. When circumstances are heavy, we can rejoice in the Lord. He is our anchor. He is our guarantee of future glory. You might have heard the baseball player this year signed a, a contract for like $300 million. Guaranteed. And we look at that and we're like, wow, I wish I was him. He is so lucky. Well, do you know the contract you have through the Holy Spirit is far, far greater than $300 million? Do you believe that this morning? What you have in Jesus is far greater than anything money can buy. You just got to get out of this earthly mindset all the time. Or we should look at $300 million and be like, you know what Jesus did for me? You know what Jesus got for me? Three hundred million. That's nothing. We really should, because that is the fact. It's not just we're just delusional and telling us, telling ourselves that. No, we have the Holy Spirit to back that up. He sealed us and guaranteed that for us. We are so blessed in Christ, no matter what He allows to come into our life. He's working it for our good. Rejoice in the Lord always. We're going to stop there this morning. I feel like the roof might be about to cave in anyway. I don't know what's going on out there. But uh, we will still rejoice. <laughs> we will still rejoice. So uh, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads uh, and close your eyes, and, and we're going to. Uh, moving to kind of a response time, and I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I know a lot of this, guys, we've talked about. We've talked about rejoicing through circumstance. We've talked about um, unity. But, I, you know, Paul thought it was worth bringing up again. The Holy Spirit thought it was worth bringing up again. So I wanted to take our time with it this morning once again. Um, and I want to ask you, um, you know, it's like I said before, the foundation for this is relationship with Christ. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, that's what you are missing in your life. That's it. 
Look no further. You're not going to find it in a bottle. You're not going to find it in a career. You're not going to find it uh, in a, a wife or a husband. You're not going to find it in continuing to just fulfill every desire you have. Your desire truly is for Christ. That, that your, you, what will meet your desires is surrender to Jesus. So I want to give you an opportunity, if you don't know Christ this morning, I want to lead you in a prayer uh, to kind of put something into words. If you say, I need to know Jesus. Um, there's no power in these words. Um, really, this is about surrendering your life to Jesus and repenting of sin. And that's how you become a Christian. And you change your life forever. And you guarantee that eternity with Christ in heaven. I want you to know that Jesus loved you enough to look at you while you were in your sin and to say, I'm going to pay the penalty for that sin on the cross. And he did that. And then he conquered death. He rose from the dead. And because of that, your sins can be taken out of the way. He asked that we repent. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You just, if that's you this morning, you just say something like this to the Lord. You say, Lord, please save me. I believe that you are who you say you are. You've paid the penalty for my sin, and I'm so sorry for my sin. I ask you to forgive me, and I repent of my sin. And Lord, I turn to you as my Savior, and I surrender my life to you. I give everything to you from this moment forward, forgetting the past and looking forward to what you have for me, Lord. I ask you to save me. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Now, if that's you this morning, you say, I just, I just, I just um, ask Jesus to save me. I want, you, I want you to do a difficult thing for me. Nobody's looking around, but I want to know how to pray for you. I want to follow up with you. So uh, if, if that's you this morning, would you just slip your hand up so I know how to pray for you? you say, I just ask Jesus uh, to be my Savior. Amen. Anybody else say, um, I just ask Jesus to be my Savior. I just receive Jesus. Well, if you still feel that tugging on your heart and you say, I need to respond. There's still time. Don't, don't leave this building. Don't leave this building without, without responding to the gospel. You've heard the good news today of how much Jesus loves you. Don't turn away. Don't turn away. For those of us that are Christians, I want to I want to ask, are you really promoting unity in this church? I also want to ask, do you need help getting that eternal perspective today? Are you having trouble just rejoicing in the Lord? Maybe you need to spend a few moments just reminding yourself of God's provision. Remind yourself of Scripture. Remind yourself of who you are in Christ.
Let me give you a few moments to do that um, in prayer, and then I'm going to pray for us, and we'll, we'll be done. Father, I'm so thankful for your word and, and for your people here this morning, and I'm so thankful for the one that um, has surrendered uh, their life to you this morning, and we just give you praise for that, Father. Um, I pray for that one, and that you would help them in, in their journey and in their uh, sanctification now and their growing towards Christ-likeness. Uh, Father, just teach them, Father. Help them to uh, be in a church, Lord, maybe this church. Um, and uh, help us to push them to holiness, to push them uh, towards you, Father. And Lord, I thank you for each individual here and, and each... Um, Lord, I know there's a lot of struggles probably coming into this room today. Uh, Lord, I, I thank you that you are Lord over every struggle. That nothing catches you by surprise, Father. And I thank you that through Jesus we can have eternal life with you. That our sins can be forgiven, Father. We're so grateful for that. I pray that our lives would show that. That we wouldn't get so bogged down with everything going wrong in our life. And that we would rather rejoice in the Lord. We would rejoice in the Lord and let that be evident to every person that we come in, in contact with. Lord, as we go into our mission fields today, Father, just give us boldness to proclaim your word. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.